Welcome to the Western Vowel Podcast Series, with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice of the spiritual path. New talks are posted by the first of each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Wonder and Radical Amazement, Relearning the Forgotten Language of the Soul. The talk was given by Regina Sarah Ryan on February 1st, 2020, in Prescott, Arizona. Regina is author of The Woman Awake, Igniting the Inner Life, Praying Dangerously, Only God, and other books. She is a former Catholic nun, a workshop leader, and senior editor of Home Press, which has published a few hundred titles of spiritual literature. Regina Sarah Ryan. I could come in and give the talks on subjects that I know a lot about, but it's much more interesting for me if I come in and give a talk about something that I'm just currently exploring. So um, not that I haven't I wouldn't say that radical amazement and awe have not characterized my life. They have. I have that as a, an organic um, drive in my own being. But to explore how other people are dealing with this and, and what, what this means to us in this day and age, because we're living in some terrible times, as we all know. We're living in times of great catastrophes in the plan, on the planet. And... Um, great political and environmental upheaval and personal, lots of personal um, pain and suffering, as there always has been, but we happen to be embodied in it right now. So we look and we say radical amazement in the face of such terrible things. How do we, how do we bring the two together? So this is part of why I'm, I'm with you tonight about this subject. The other reason I'm with this subject is because I've had my spiritual teacher, Lee Lazowick, for almost 35 years now, although he passed away um, almost 10 years ago now. Well, maybe 40 years I've been with Lee, almost. And um, Lee, in one of his poems, refers to Rabbi Abraham Heschel as saying that praise precedes faith. And... Faith is always a kind of a mystery thing, you know. Like, what does it re really mean to have faith? Faith in what or who or how or whatever. But that that worked on me. That particular quote, like some kind of a koan that you have to wrestle with. And I wanted to explore that more deeply. So praise precedes faith, and then Lee's teacher, the Indian. Um, Master Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar would say to people, praise only praise. That's what he was looking for. He was looking for us to be praising God all the time. So if God, if the word God isn't your, isn't your deal, he was looking for praise as the context of life. Not, oh, I really like your blouse. You know, that's not, not, not he wasn't looking for that kind of praise. Although, it does help once in a while, doesn't it, when you're having a bad day? <laughs> but um, he was looking for uh, the deepest meaning of what it meant to be praised, to be in praise, 
as uh, the, the, the overriding sentiment of one's existence. So when Lee took up his practice of writing poetry to his master, he wrote thousands of poems, literally. And, um, and these poems were all in praise of the greatness, the goodness, the beauty, the, the kindness, the sensitivity, the wonder, the miracles of his master, and therefore reflecting on great, the great God to whom all was dedicated. So he was asking us to take on a way of life, not just to go around saying, you know, I like that, and this is good, and oh, that's, you know, that's wonderful or whatever. It was, it was a context in which we lived in awe at this miracle and mystery and in radical amazement at how life was unfolding around us. The alternative to that is um, a type of mediocrity that's very bland, <clears throat> sort of, you know, kind of, a bland relationship to to what's around us, or it's a a, a relationship of of a type of cynicism and um, resignation. You know? So uh, if if you get to call the shots of what your life is going to look like, you have the option. You have the option of cynicism and resignation. You have the option of kind of bland blandness and mediocrity, we have the option of uh, possibility and awe and wonder and, you know, radical amazement. One of the words that Rabbi Abraham Heschel used was the word surprise. The actual meaning of surprise is to be taken from above, to be prized, you know, to be taken Serve from above, above you. Wow, that's what he was saying. He said that this was one of the qualities of the human of the human being that we have the ability to be taken from above in the sense of surprise. Not surprise like <gasps> you scared me, you know, but surprise like wow, this is incredible. And I don't I don't have a big relationship to dogs and cats, so I don't know if they experience that kind of surprise. But I think it is very specific, a specific human quality that we have this ability to have to have an awareness that there is a potential that may not yet be realized. Wow. You know, like when you see the child who all of a sudden stands up and and walks, you know, we're like, wow, you know, this 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 being has possibility. There's there's. It's not like a set, a set life ahead of them, or at least in, in our day and age, most of us are not presented with, this is exactly how you're going to live their life. So the very reality of the human person is that we are a surprise and that we live on the, on the edge of surprise all the time. And if we don't have that sense then we can just remind ourselves, oh, that old lady, she said something about I could live off the edge of surprise. And you could think about that. <laughs> you could think about that. You could write about that. Or you could just start looking around at people who surprise you. 
And that would be a very interesting way to explore this topic, which is what how I'm kind of working with this. I'm working with it by engaging, looking around for things that are surprising. And it certainly, it's being, hello, wake up. It's certainly, um, you know, when when a kid does a, is, becomes a great athlete or, you know, they, they do a great game or when the, when the child picks up music and plays something fantastic, uh, you, you understand this whole thing about potential and surprise. But um, to even, to see that on the, on the very small level, the, the child who shares his cookie with someone else, and you go, oh, well, that was, that's radical. That's surprising, you know? It's really radical. And radical, I'm, by radical, I mean not that it's extreme, not like extreme sports or extreme amazement, you know, like you have to be like falling down a, a slope on a skateboard or something, but radical means to go to the root. That's what radical is. The radius, the the, ra- the radical is the root of something. So what we're suggesting is that there is this radical possibility. That means it goes to the root of who we are as human beings. That we have possibility. That even in the midst of hell we have the possibility to find to find beauty i think of the of the writer uh, eddie hillisum who some of you may have may have heard of who was in concentration camp in poland or germany one of those two and she was saying she wrote and she said you know the the suffering here is quite terrible and i walk along the fence at night, and I thank God, I thank the divine for just the beauty of, you know, uh, a weed under my feet or a, a star in the sky and so on. These are the things that inspire us, people in the midst of suffering, people in, who are dying, people who are um, going through very radical changes, who are able to find that kind of thing. This is, this is a unique and awesome human quality. So I acknowledge that in you. I acknowledge the the surprise of waking up tomorrow morning. I acknowledge the surprise of of the possibility that you you might not say the same thing to to that person who's annoying you (laughs) every day, but you might actually give them a smile. You might actually smile at that stranger, and that would be radically amazing and radically different another another one of these uh, these are the threads that have sort of come together in in this uh, conversation my teacher lee used this wonderful phrase that it was an, it was an, uh, an element of his teaching and it was called it was draw no conclusions mind and we joke that we just missed up a few words of that teaching and now we, we're practicing draw conclusions mind but anyway his his teaching was draw no conclusions mind and what that meant what that means for me and i think what it meant for him with us was that um 
everything is everything gets gets stuck with a story attached to it. And so everything that somebody says to you, every time they, they turn their eyes and look at you in a different way, is immediately we've drawn a conclusion about what that means about me, why they don't like me, or why they're just stupid, whatever. And we're, I am always making stories that usually don't have happy conclusions. It would be nice if the conclusion I drew was, oh, they love me. <laughs> that would really make my life pretty cool. But I don't. And we're living out in the desert. Now we see six ravens fly across the horizon on Saturday morning, the day of Saturn. You know, and somebody's there, whoa, watch out today. Something bad could happen. <laughs> like, Draw no conclusions, mind. Could we, could we possibly, and this is just, this is what I'm practicing because I'm watching how frequently I do it. Well, I'm just inviting us. And I, I think that drawing conclusions, mind, is one of the ways in which we have stifled radical amazement and wonder and awe. Because a child, you, you've been with children, you've seen them enough to see that if they... If, if you were with a child of a certain age, they would just go, Whoa! Mm -hmm. six, you know, and it would just be radical amazement at whatever it is, this, this phenomenon, six birds in the sky. That's it. That's it, all it was. And as adults, we wonder what happened. You know, why did I, what, what happened that I lost that? So in the development of our discrimination functions, we've also gone overboard and taken some of the wonder and joy and amazement out of our experience of creation. So it's, I'm, I'm only just dropping these as little possible seeds that we could use to, to imagine or to, to work with because I'm convinced that, I'll quote for you, as Heschel was saying, that we can re-enliven wonder and radical amazement and that the, the re-enlivenment of this is a way into the nourishment of the soul. And this is the conclusion of my talk right now, but we have a lot of time to talk about it after I finish it. But the conclusion of my talk is that if we are not nourishing our soul, then the soul function in, in life is diminished. And you are responsible, you and I, as I am, each one of us is responsible for the nourishment of the soul. If you are not doing it, it's not being done there. And the more of us who are not nourishing the soul, the more we are giving space to the death, is the death of God. You can call it anything you want. Is it like the death of God, like doesn't, God doesn't exist anymore? Like God doesn't exist anymore. The idea or the, the presence of the divine being diminished in the world. I, I know that right now what's occurring for me is that a conception of God as a big overriding person or big overriding force separate from me is not it's not feeding me. It's not, it's not enlivening me. It's not nurturing me. What's working for me is that if God is alive here, then God is alive. 
I'm seeing it now as that force which enlivens the human, the human life force, the human, the human uh, soul, as I will call it. And that if that is not being nurtured in me, then it's not being nurtured. Uh, but then one or more elements in this creation are not taking responsibility for that. This is, this is the way I'm, I'm wording it right now, but I'm also drawing from some of what Heschel is saying. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of that. But first, a word from our sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> so this was in a newspaper, a quotation that was in a newspaper, and this poet named Pat Ellis wrote this poem based on the, what she saw in the newspaper. And what it said in the newspaper was, quote, scientists find universe awash, <coughs> the universe awash in tiny diamonds. So she writes, but haven't we always known? The shimmer of trees, the shaking of flames, every cloud lined with something, clean water sings right to the belly, scouring us with its purity. It too is awash with diamonds, so small that trillions could rest on the head of a pin. It is not unwise then to say that the air is hung close with diamonds, that we breathe diamond, our lungs hoarding, exchanging our blood, sowing them rich and thick along every course it takes. Does this explain why some of us are so hard and why some of us shine and why we are all precious? That we are awash in creation, spumed with diamonds, shot through with beauty that survived the death of stars. Ellis. The poets do know this. And uh, one of the ways in which we move into the domain in which we are, we can be touched by awe and radical amazement is to read how the poets are able to synthesize and, and articulate this, this experience of being awash in diamonds. One of my all-time favorite quotes was from the poet Rana Maria Rilke, who, who wrote that, um, you know, do not seek for the answers which cannot now be given because you are not yet able to live them. Live your questions now. And then perhaps, even without knowing it, you will live along some distant day into your answers. So he's asking us to, to put aside the need to have an answer for everything, to put aside the need to have a story for everything, and to live with the questions. What are our questions? So let me tell you a little bit about Rabbi Abraham Heschel. Uh, he was born in 1909 in Poland, and he came from a family of Hasidic rabbi. And he was being groomed to take over the Polish Jewish community, to be one of the great leaders of the Jewish community in Poland. 
And so he was sent to Berlin at a young age to study. And in Berlin, he studied philosophy and theology and his Hebrew studies and, you know, was deeply immersed in that work till he was, you know, between the ages of, like, between his 20th and almost 30th year, he was studying. And it was just during that time, while he was in Berlin, that the uh, that Nazi Germany, the Nazi um, situation in Germany began to become stronger and stronger. And he was, he left Germany at that time. He was able to leave and to come by way of London and then by way of New York and landed in New York in 1940, just at a time when his family was being um, taken by the, by the Nazis and exterminated. So he lost his whole family. And when he, by the time he got to New York in 1940, he had already published his first book of poetry in which he began to talk about the need to uh, look at life from a totally different perspective, even in the midst of the evil that he was seeing around him. And starting then in 1940, he became um, the uh, central figure at the, in the Jewish theological work in New York City, in the, in the Jewish centers there. <clears throat> And then became, through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, became more and more uh, an international figure who began to interact with Christians, began to interact with people in the civil rights movement, began to interact with political figures, and was soon really recognized as um, a prophet of his time. So when you read his work, what you're reading is someone who had, was groomed to be the head of a, a great um, movement in his own country, but who now has expanded that and has become actually a bridge between the, 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 um, the Jewish mystical tradition and traditions all of Christianity and Hinduism and Buddhism and, and so on and so forth. So I... I'm just really excited to introduce you to him and to tell you that he is somebody who is to be reckoned with and somebody who could be a source of tremendous inspiration and um, aliveness and grace and goodness and excitement for you in your life. Um, what I'm going to do by way of introducing him further is give you five of his quotes that you can look at now because we'll look at them together. Because I think in each one of these quotes, you're going to see the type of, of a mystic that he was. Um, his, his work is literally is so profound that you, you can't just read it. You have to just like take one line and sort of sit with it uh, to see the, the depth at which he was, he was exploring his own, his own traditions. So, so who's a good reader? <laughs> Our, our goal should be to live life in radical amazement, to get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. It's really beautiful. Yeah, you know, 
it, it's a hallmark card unless you live unless you're willing to live it. You know, it's it's the it's it's the front of a hallmark card. You know, you could send it to somebody. Just be amazed. Everything is lovely, and yet, yes. in, unless you're willing to actually be with what he's saying here, and to look at who doesn't take it for granted. Lots of things. You know, I live in I live in the most beautiful place in the world, and I get up every morning and I. I practice meditation with a group of people, and as I'm walking to the meditation hall, I see the, the beginnings of the sunrise over the over the over the hills. And I I say to myself every morning, "Don't ever take this for granted." And then the next day, I'm just like, you know, <laughs> I'm running there. And um, but it makes a difference on the days when I don't take it for granted. It makes a difference on the days when I when I recognize that this and I let that become prayer. Because what am I rushing to the meditation hall for if I'm <laughs> rushing there and missing God's recreation of the new day, right? So it's like how even easy it is. There's this too, because this is what I'm working on. And because when things go wrong in our life, you know, we resist it and we, you know, we, we don't see the awe, we don't see the beauty, we don't, you know, because things are off and yeah. we don't like it. And and I'm learning to embrace that as well, yes. which yes. is not easy because you don't want to feel bad, <laughs> you know, but it's part of everything and, and it's God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of what that says to me as well. Yeah. Yeah. The next one, who wants to read it? Well, you are going to be judged by all of us very harshly if you should. (laughs) We expect perfect reading with absolute articulation. Tom, would you read it? Gently. Remember that there is meaning beyond absurdity. Know that every deed counts, that every word is power. Above all, remember that you must live your life as if it were a work of art. So this was one of the last quotes he actually gave. And he was asked to give um, a legacy teaching to future generations, especially to young people. And this is what he said. This was, the, this was part of that final uh, legacy. This is where his whole um, teaching about the the wonder of human possibility and the fact that he wanted to say to young people, you, at this point in your life, you have a big choice. And the choice is, will you create of your life a work of beauty? And this is what is, this is what's possible for the changing of the world. So it wasn't about get out there and vote or get out there and, you know, clean up the environment and get out there, all of which are will flow out of this essence teaching. Because if you're if you are going to make of your life a work of beauty, then all of the others is going to happen as a result of that that radical, that's the radical commitment at its core. And so he's saying to them, there's meaning beyond absurdity. And 
And he's saying that to young people because, you know, it's not just us who look around and say, what's it worth? Or is there any hope? Or is, gonna, you know, is anything possible? It's, it's a, a young people looking around and saying, you know, look at this world you left me. And it's absurd. This is crazy. And yet uh, the very same ones who are fully involved in creating more and better and different in a, in a panic in order to use materialistic uh, values in order to give meaning to something that seems fully absurd. So he is, he's telling them right, right here, there's meaning beyond absurdity and that every deed counts, every word counts. You know, once again, these are, these are like, these are posters to put on your wall or Hallmark cards unless you're willing to say what, what would that really mean if I were to take that on just for today and recognize that every word I say today has the possibility of being either a seed put into, uh, into fertile soil or it could just be something that's just spit out on, on, a, on a piece of, on a slab of concrete, you know, like every word would have that kind of weightiness for us. I'm touched by this guy. <laughs> BJ, would you read the third one for us? I would say about individuals. An individual, it's a different. An individual dies when they cease to be surprised. I'm surprised every morning when I see the sunshine again. When I see an act of evil, I don't accommodate. I don't accommodate myself to the violence that goes on everywhere. I am still so surprised. That is why I am against it. We must learn to be surprised. For me, that was very a very radical approach to, to dealing with pain and evil in the world. Because we know that, you know, we certainly know from the partisanship that as soon as you take you know, as soon as you get against something in, in a certain way, you create this polarization. And what he's saying is, if, if we could really understand the essence of the human being, what's really true about the human, then when we see that human acting or speaking in a way that's really surpri- surprising, you know, surprising to us, shocking, that we could that we could be with that just in the bodily sensation of what it is. So one of Heschel's really big things is that wonder and awe and radical amazement and surprise are impacts on the sensational nature of who we are as creatures. It's not a reasoned thing. Well, that's because and they violated this. And it's the way in which you feel when you see that child stand up. Well, it's the way you feel when you see an act of cruelty. It's, 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 it's that kind of surprise. And it's out of that allowing of the body to be a permeable membrane, to receive both the, the, the grace of this as well as the, as the horror of this that, has, that moved him. He said that because he, he had practiced this as part of his life, he, he made surprise. His prayer was, he, he begged God. He said, I do not beg for happiness. I beg for wonder. 
That was his prayer. Because happiness is, you know, a self a self contained thing, and it also has has an endpoint. It's like, okay, I'm happy, <laughs> and he didn't ever want any endpoint. He wanted. He wanted always to be in this state whereby wonder was his was his condition. So, yeah. So and the thing about I don't accommodate. I don't accommodate. That's a very interesting word. Mm-hmm. I don't accommodate evil. Um, I'm surprised by it, and that's why I'm against it. Because it's so, you know, I'm so surprised. It's so unlike the who I see the human being to be. It just, it shocks me. And so he says, he says, I put my, my, I, I put my prayer in my legs, and I walk my prayer. And one of the things that he did was he became very close friends of Dr. Martin Luther King. And uh, there, there are photographs of them together. There are, there are. There are dialogues that are recorded of his his conversations with King, and he he recognized Martin Luther King as the prophet, as a living prophet coming out of the Judaic tradition that that Heschel was in. He knew what prophets looked like from the from the Old Testament, and he and he acknowledged while he was still alive, he acknowledged Martin Luther King as a prophet, and knowing as King did that it could mean that you would be killed, that you would be, that you would be killed, and knowing for himself that that could be the case as well. But for King, he actually, was, he actually saw King in the week before he died. So it was that kind of a thing. It was like, I have to walk my prayer. If I'm acting crazy. My glasses have just gone completely fluey. My... <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Surprise. Wow. Surprise. <laughs> okay. Who's going to read us another one? Karuna. Number four, right? Yes. The meaning of awe is to realize that life takes place under wide horizons. Horizons that range beyond the span of an individual life or even the life of a nation a generation, or an era. All enables us to perceive in the world intimations of the divine, to sense in small things the beginning of infinite significance, to sense the ultimate in the common and the simple, to feel in the rush of the passing the stillness of the eternal. So... um, for me, this this is about the um, uh, in in Bo- the Buddhists talk about having a broader view. They use that phrase, having the broad view. Um, to change one's view is to change one's mind. Is to change one's con- context of life. And what I found in Heschel was that he had a view of the microcosm. Mm-hmm. And he had the view of a macrocosm. And as long as he was able to hold the microcosmic view, he was in awe. You know, you start, 
studying subatomic particle physics or, or whatever, and you just go, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And then you go out into the sky, and then you go to the planetarium, and you see, and you recognize the ultimate huge sense of the universe, and you go, oh my God. You know? So at either level, it makes the sort of in-between worlds a little bit look a little bit differently. Uh, there's not a lot of self-importance at the microcosmic level, and there's not a lot of human self-importance at the macrocosmic level. So he was inviting us to do to do those to put our views there, because you know how easy it is to get lost in this stuff. And then you then you have a you have a meeting with a friend who says to you, you know, I I see, I see the truth of who you are. Right? I see what you're truly dedicated to. I see the love that that works you. And all of a sudden you're like expanded. You're expanded, even though you know that six times this morning you were impatient or mm-hmm. unkind or whatever you were, you know that they have touched something of the essence. Okay, number five. <laughs> e, e, why did you read number five for us? I got glasses. Oh, I love this one. <gasps> Uh, and you can go. You can you can substitute she for he or he and she or whatever because some people get upset with this. Okay, I like to read the author's name. <laughs> he who wants to enter the holiness of the day must first lay down the profanity of clattering commerce, of being yoked to toil. He must go away from the screech of dissonant days. From the nervousness and fury of acquisitiveness yeah. and the betrayal in embezzling his own life. He must say farewell to manual work and learn to understand that the world has already been created and will survive without the help of man. Six days a week we wrestle with the world bringing profit from the earth. On the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soil. In the soul. In the soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. Six days a week, we seek to dominate the world. On the seventh day, we try to dominate the self. Thank you. I was so excited to um, to get back in touch with this concept because everybody I talk to says they they use the big O word. I'm overwhelmed right now. They say, or um, I'm really feeling a lot of pressure. Or, I'm trying to do ten things at once, or. You know, there's always more things to do that we are unable to do or unwilling to put down right now in this day and age. And for any of you who were raised in um, in Judaism, or especially Orthodox Judaism, there was a tremendous, tremendous ritual attached to the Sabbath that started the night before with sundown and the invoking of prayers and having a communal meal with your family. 
And, you know, I know a lot of us have left the religion of our childhood and have taken on, you know, a religion of one or a religion of whatever we have taken on. We've taken on a, a conglomerate religions or we've followed spiritual teachers. We've gone to India, whatever we've done. But the, many of the, these very early rituals that we had as as children with uh, our, our Sundays, for those of us who were raised in Catholicism, or our Saturdays, those of us raised in Judaism, there's something that needs to be reclaimed, I think, just for human sanity, just for sanity's sake. Um, where I'm living now, it's, it's, it's out in the wilderness, and it's like I, I feel so called to preserving this place as a place of sanctuary, where at some points when someone needs to find a place of sanctuary, they can find a place of true solitude and sanctuary and silence and do retreat and you know, really go into, um, into something where they're not bombarded with the screech of the, of, the, of the dissonant world. I watched in my lifetime, I watched Sunday become secularized as a, in, in the Christian world. And I'm sure from, from Judaism, it's, it's much the same. So now, what are the weekends but more commerce, more shopping, and time to catch up and do more work that you didn't get done during the week? Or there are the times to do all your, all your tasks, all your laundry and cleaning and cooking for the week ahead and so on and so forth. And the whole idea of the Sabbath was not as a catch-up day. It was, an, it was the idea was to give one, one day a week, you know, one tithe, one-seventh of your, of your life to um, prayer and praise, to acknowledging your radical connections, your radical roots, to rest. You know, so I, I help to run a retreat center, and when people come, I say to them, you know, you might do nothing for the first couple of days, but just sleep. And this is good. Because some people want to go on retreat. They're going to go out. You know, they're going to put on their soldier uniform and go out and really do that thing. And they're going to sit like, you know, Miller Rep or whatever. But... Um, what we need, in, what we need, is some rest, <clears throat> rest, real rest, and and it's, you know, it's great. I mean, I, I have friends who, for them, Sunday is they stay in they stay in bed, read the New York Times, watch videos, and have lattes and croissants. And that's okay. You know, that's great. I mean, it, it, they need it in some ways. You want to know those friends? I want to meet these friends. <laughs> It's great too, and I don't mean to be critical of it. I do say, however, that for those of us who say that we would like to deeply, deeply nourish the the, the re- regenerate the soul, that at least some of that time on the whatever we chose as as part of a Sabbath was dedicated to prayer, praise, practice writing, reading, studying, so that the soul was being fed the food of surprise, or that we went outside and sat and just examined, you know, the microcosm for, you know, 20 minutes, a half an hour. We took a long walk in nature and did not wear our 
our uh, listen to iP- to uh, podcasts as we were walking, but actually looked at blackbirds and looked at sunsets and breathed air. You know, I know I love it. I see people out exercising, and I'm like, oh, I wish I was as disciplined as they are. And I also know that that they're having we're having more and more uh, auditory input that's constantly causing um, vibration in the body that's not the vibration of of, of peace of, of a type of, re, of rest. The cells need to deeply rest, and it may be impossible for you as you look at your at your look at your week to dedicate a whole day to it. You have families, you have kids, whatever, but maybe it's possible to have one afternoon. You know, maybe it's possible, or maybe it's possible, which is what I attempt to do, is to have the first three or four hours of every day. So I get up early because I like to, and I and I dedicate those early morning hours to practice to my practice. So whether I walk or I sit and write in my journal, or I I have a meditation practice that I do every day for almost an hour. I mean, it's like unless I do that. I don't know. I, <laughs> I'd be more frazzled and you know more crazy than I than I already feel a lot of the time. Um, this is what I'm saying. And if if we're not doing that, if we are not building an inner soul, if we're not building the soul in this way, then the soul of the world is not being built. It's not being fed. And look around you at how the soul is being denied and dissipated, and uh, and bombarded with vibrations that just make it insane. You, know, you, you read what certain politicians say, and you go, "What?" <laughs> you know, or you read, you know, you, you know, you just watch the news, and you go, "What?" You know, and you know that what you're seeing is the result of soul loss. Soul loss. How do you counter soul loss? You don't go and try to preach to them. You don't kill them. You don't try and change them because it's, it's, well, you might hurt yourself in the process. But you build your soul and then your soul takes legs and it does actions that are of use. And for some of us, it will be simply you know, a phone call here and there to a, to a friend in need, or it will be visiting the sick, giving food to the hungry, clo- sending clothing, you know, working on a little bit for, for something that creates your life as an act of beauty. So for me, this teaching about the Sabbath, whew, it's really beautiful. He has another quote about the Sabbath that Chris quotes in here. I really like, I was talking to my, I, talk, I called Chris this week, I said, I'm going to give a talk on, on Heschel and radical amazement, and I said, what do you have to say? Whew. This is a slippery thing, and my hands are slippery, and my shirt is slippery, so I can slip right <laughs> I'd be on the floor with my glasses. <laughs> so Chris was very sweet, he's, you know, he's a Catholic theologian, and he said, he said, um, 
He said, I like to tell my students this, that he says, I got this from Heschel. He said, if, if you don't practice living the life of eternity now, when you get to eternity, you won't know what to do. <laughs> you're going to be really, really impatient, and you're not going to be very happy there. He said, you've got to practice living the life of eternity now. And he said, the other thing he said, which was really funny, he's, he's so sweet. He says, um, he said, also, when you get to eternity or when you get to the feast, God's feast, you just don't know who's going to be sitting next to you and who's going to be sitting across from you. So it's good if you've practiced uh, being with everyone while you're still here. You know? So he's quoting Heschel and saying that a lot. So here's what Heschel says. The Sabbath contains more than a morsel of eternity. Unless one learns how to relish the taste of Sabbath while still in this world, Unless one is initiated in the appreciation of eternal life, and you could call that, you know, true freedom, you know, true freedom, true, true compassion, whatever, whatever it is that you aspire to as being your higher life. Unless one is initiated in the appreciation of eternal life, one will be unable to enjoy the taste of eternity in the world to come. Sad is the lot of one who arrives inexperienced and when led to heaven has no power to perceive the beauty all around them. That's sweet. That's really sweet. Do you need to stretch, stand up, just jump up and down? I have water, but I don't have enough for everybody. (laughs) Not too many more points. Enough is enough. This is Messenger by Mary Oliver. My work is loving the world. Here are the sunflowers, there the hummingbird, equal seekers of sweetness. Here are the quickening yeast, there are the blue plums. Here are the clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? <laughs> Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. (laughs) The Phoebe, the Delphinium, the sheep in the pasture in the pasture, which is mostly rejoicing since all the ingredients are here, which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes and a mouth with which to shout with which to give shouts of joy to the moth and the wren, to the sleepy dug-up clam, telling them all over and over how it is that we all live forever. Thank you, Mary Oliver. So my friend Tom is visiting us from Boulder, and uh, Tom and I were, were... we're watching the birds outside the, the kitchen this morning, and uh, we, we were reflecting that if, if you want to start, if you don't have a particular practice yet that just gives you the possibility of radical amazement and wonder and awe and joy first thing in the morning, then you should start feeding birds. Oh, let me tell you one more story, then, then I'll take your comments. 
So we're sitting on a train. I forget where we were. Maybe we were in Germany or France. I was traveling with my teacher, Lee. I was sitting on a bench very close to him. Sitting across from us was a, um, a, a beautiful young child. And as we were riding in this train, we were all fascinated by this child. She was singing. She was doing something. You know, she was just... This is being child in her most beautiful thing, her most beautiful way. And when we got to the place where Lee was giving a talk, he was giving a public seminar, he described this child and us on the on the uh, bench talking, uh, seeing this this little girl. And he said that if you are not deeply troubled and question what happened to you. When you see a child like this, he said, then you need to really make some deeper self-reflection. He said, when you see a child, you should be saying to yourself, what happened? Where did it go? What happened? So, you know, maybe the answer is that that you just started developing discriminating mind and you needed to explore many, many things. But also, what crushes wonder and awe and radical amazement very, 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 very strongly is, is the need for predictability and control. Because um, we, we, need, we want things to be explainable. We want them to be predictable so that we can have control in the situation, so that we know where, where to move, how to go. As long as they're predictable, then we feel safe. And this is understandable. And I mean, children begin to begin to do that in their lives. They look around and they say, I can't do this, I can't do that, because that's going to provoke this. But when you see an act of spontaneity, when you see an act of, you know, just the pure joy of that of that being, to reflect upon where in my life I have taken on these these demand this mindset of everything needs to be predictable everything needs to be controlled so uh, this is this thing about controlling everything uh, I understand it very well it's it's like the meditation of this year for me because so I took on this year my theme that I took on hick on a theme every year my theme for this year is the surrender experiment. Mm-hmm. You know? And so what does that really mean? What does it really mean to give up control? Not to be that I'm, I, you know, they have, was there a great cartoon in the New Yorker this week? There's a woman sitting in a big easy chair. <laughs> She's sitting like this. You know, she has, just like this. <laughs> the caption is, the woman who has no core. <laughs> <laughs> it was just so beautiful because the, the cartoon, the person who's the cartoonist is a female and she she does all of these kind of funny takes on the current culture. And you know how do your Pilates exercise, build your core, build your core. So she has this fabulous, you know, it's like a shrine to a woman who has no core. <laughs> so um, why did I get on that? 
No one who has control. Oh, control. Yeah, so the control. The woman who has no core. I'm not talking about becoming the woman who has no core. <laughs> Give up control. But my friends are helping me right now because I'm in a place right now in my life where because my husband is gone, I'm needing this scared child or this lonesome one is looking out and saying, you know, I have to, I have to do this now. You know, I can't rely on this. I have to take it, take it under control. And I've always been a control freak. So it's nothing new for me, but it's, it's intensified now because I have to look at all the things that he was doing and I have to take them on for myself or, or not. Which is something I have to learn. Well, I'm learning this, so um, so that's why I took on this this particular theme for this year. This surrender experiment is to begin to play with this idea of you don't have to control everything, and you don't have to do everything, and you don't have to keep up the appearance of the same way that you had to keep it up for years and years. So it's it's a huge gift for uh, somebody who wants to work on themselves in this in this particular practice stories comments or my children are both grown now they're in their 20s but i remember when they were young i was hustling hustling us somewhere you know moving ahead and i suddenly realized that one of them you know one of them wasn't going to be kind of straggling straggling back and when I turned around, um, my son was smelling a flower. <laughs> and it was such a, I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was such an intervention in my, <laughs> my hustle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, it really touched me. Yes. Yeah. Completely innocent. Like, yeah. Full of wonder. So, um, it's a little nice year, so I'm sitting at my desk, which is in my basement for the last 30 years, and, uh, and I was typing, and I get up early to work, and, and there was this, this, this thing that caught my eye on the side of my computer, and it was this tiny, tiny, tiny little spider. The tiniest spider you ever saw, and it made this gigantic to it little web that connected with the lower part of my computer and the desk, and and it was like doing its thing. It was like really, really, really busy being a spider. It, its universe was where it was. It was totally in place, but for me, it was out of place. And instead of like. Maybe in years past, I just would have, like, wiped it out. I was in awe. <laughs> I was the God. I just sat there and went, this piece of life is just expressing itself fully. just happens to be in my basement. Mm-hmm. And that was one. I mean, it's the first time I actually felt blown away by, by wonder. Mm-hmm. And I kept it there. And, and on the third day, it disappeared. Mm-hmm. I just want to share what got me. So this 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 um, this quote here about and you talk about the scale 
Mm-hmm. Uh, what opened up to me was the tiny, 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 tiny scale. Mm-hmm. And and now I'm really aware of what's tiny. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, like I don't want to hurt what's, what's tiny. Yeah. It doesn't even know I exist. Yeah. I exist and can know what's tiny. Mm-hmm. And so that brought on just a level of connectivity and responsibility that I never never thought I'd have. Mm-hmm. And, and I like what you're saying about the soul because... That wasn't in none of this wonder um, <clears throat> and awe. It, this about the spider was not in my mind. It was like in, more in my heart. <laughs> Sometimes, if you're in a public place, and I mean, I, I can tell you this because this is something I have to work at. I'm in a public place, and you're noticing that you are making a critical judgment of something or someone. Um, that's a really good clue and cue to, to do this little bit of a, a switch and say to yourself, you know, maybe I could just look at this with amazement rather than with criticism. So please draw no conclusion mind or just like, whoa, you know, wow. <laughs> the question arising or just, it's like this, one of the things that Heschel says is that um, the reason he can be a bridge to all other religious groups is that he knows that every single one of them has this longing, this deep, radical um, urge for divinity, for the sacred inside of themselves. And they're, they may be doing it in, from different rituals, different forms, different different scriptures. But he he sees that this is these are the these are the people who are going to sit around the table with him at the banquet, at the eternal banquet, and they're all going to be there because they had that same that same longing. So it's like it doesn't matter for him, you know what you what you're going to call yourself, what religion you are. Because what he's looking for in in the in the person is that is that is that radical essence. Nahama. Well, I I love these quotes and a couple of them I've read before. Um, but what really uh, got my attention was when he talks about how he doesn't accommodate himself to the violence that goes on everywhere. I found that statement to be really powerful because I was just asking myself throughout the evening, well, what does that mean? And to me, what it means is he doesn't let it have the kind of power over him so that his heart shuts down, that he doesn't he doesn't collapse in resignation. And he knew violence. He lost his entire family. And there was a tremendous amount of suffering and chaos and turbulence. Yes. And this is really, this is a great reminder for me because if he could say that and stay open to surprise and awe, then with everything that's going on in the world today, I can do the same thing because sometimes I do feel like I am beginning to do that and accommodating. I'm giving it a lot of power. I'm giving negativity things, the turbulence that goes on in the world, I'm yes. giving it a lot of power. But I think that's that's cause for question because of what, what he's saying here. Oh, yeah. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm.
if you if your heart break if your heart closes down, your soul is not fed, can't be fed from a closed heart. Maybe they're the same thing, you know, in this in that same way. And then and then the collective heart of humanity is closed, is closing. We have to keep it open. We have to keep it open. But that's a temptation with violence. That's how it bears down on us. Yeah. You know, well, we want to close down. I want to close down and say, enough. Yeah. I'm just trying to protect myself and maybe protect people I love and, yeah. you know, try and figure out how to survive in it or to rise up, yeah. you know, into this, like, state of, of awe where we could see it in any moment, like mm-hmm. it's possible in any moment, no matter what's going on. Yeah. I don't know. Like, that kind of wakes me up mm-hmm. in a way. Oh, great.